This week's episode of the Star Wars Report is brought to you by the good folks supporting us over on patreon.com slash Report. Let's do the show, folks. Gum, gum, gum. And who might you be? It's the Star Wars Report. Star Wars Report. Woo! Star Wars Report. The place for Star Wars news, features, interviews, and more. Then we can do something epic. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. Please delete as appropriate. The Force. It's calling to you. Just let it in. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Star Wars Report podcast. I'm your host, Riley Blanton, and uh, welcome back. We got a pretty special episode for you guys. We're looking back at 2020. Uh, a pretty great year for Star Wars fans, although a crazy year for everything else, pretty much. But um, I had the opportunity to sit down and kind of look through the, the podcast archive throughout the year and select some of my favorite moments and interviews and segments from the show that we'll be featuring this week and next week as we look back at the Star Wars Report in 2020. Uh, for this episode, we have a segment I recorded back with one of the last in-person um, podcast recording I did. It was with Scott Rifen at his house. We were talking all things Rise of Skywalker. Uh, but then also, we had the opportunity to chat with uh, Mr. J.W. Rinsler, actually, who's 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 in the midst of a battle with cancer actually right now on a serious note i want you guys to uh, a great way to support him right now uh, as uh you know and reach out as the star wars uh, community is to check out his his latest book which i read over the summer all up uh, i just wanted to throw that shout out uh, purchase it on amazon it's a great way to support him uh, and for us as a star wars community to support him during this tough time but he he gave us some incredible insight into his time at Lucasfilm and the behind the scenes of the prequel era and even digging into uh, some of his refreshingly honest um, and objective look at the the Disney era of Star Wars film from the perspective of someone who worked directly with George Lucas for many years. Uh, And then, of course, we have uh, probably one of my favorite interviews of the year, Dr. David West Reynolds, an actual real-life archaeologist, pretty much an actual real-life Indiana Jones, but... Uh, famous for uh, going back and personally going on a quest in the uh, early 90s to rediscover the original filming location in Tunisia uh, for the original Star Wars film. And he talks about his journey that led him to actually work for Lucasfilm as a location scout and in many other capacities uh, in the prequel time. Uh, so uh, a, a bunch of great content. Next week, we've got some more great interviews uh, as well uh, as we reminisce and look back at 2020. And then uh, the regular podcast will be back in the new year. Thanks for listening, guys. And may the Force be with you. You're listening to the Star Wars Report. Never tell me the odds. Uh, let's move back a couple years and not talk about Return of the Jedi, but Empire, because we um, it is the 40th anniversary year. It was going to really probably be the theme of celebration. Of course, now it's uh, it's the big 10th anniversary for Attack of the Clones. Don't forget. I hope Disney really plays it up. 20th. I want... I want I said, did I say 10th? Jeez. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Has it been that long? No time's passing. Oh, my gosh. I'm telling you. Jeez. Oh, I'm old. Um, <laughs> but, yes, uh, you are. <laughs> but on the, so for Empire, I actually, I really enjoyed, I'll, I'll plug it right here. You, uh, 
Jimmy Mack, uh, Steve Glosson, I think Shaz Bazaar, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. You guys all uh, hung out and did like a pretty fun commentary conversation about the about the Empire Strikes Back. Watched the movie. It's kind of a watch party slash commentary. And I really enjoyed the podcast. And I thought I would kind of do a segment with you here and kind of condense down, especially reflecting on the 40th anniversary, some of your favorite elements of the film. Because I've never actually... I mean, I've talked plenty of Star Wars with you, but I don't think I've ever really had the chance to to like get your top few. So I hope you're ready. I have actually... I've, I've right here on my piece of paper, I've jotted down some empire specific questions that i wanted to hit you with okay. mr scott rifen if you're ready okay yes absolutely let's do it all right uh favorite character in empire strikes back darth vader oh interesting why no nope. well, uh for one thing i always loved the look mm. i loved the voice i loved particularly in empire strikes back this complete remorselessness with which he just did evil things and I thought this is this is. Mm. I mean, he did bad things in the first film. Yeah, and blew you know, but he didn't give the order to blow up Alderaan. And he was just kind of there. He was a henchman. But here he is, just he is leading the charge, doing very awful, terrible things, and doesn't seem to show any regret whatsoever. And it just that fascinated me. The look fascinated me. The sounds fascinated me. The voice fascinated me. And the other thing that fascinated me, and I and and I you know I'm in the somewhat of the entertainment industry myself. Uh, I think radio, we often call ourselves the armpit of the entertainment industry. But um, one of the things that always fascinated me was the reaction. And when I saw Empire Strikes Back that first day, uh, they gave everybody who went into the theater a poster. And it was this Boris Vallejo poster with Vader holding two sabers crossed over his head. Gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous poster. And uh, everybody who walked in got one. Well, the first time Vader shows up on screen, Half the people in the theater lost their posters because they all threw them at the screen. <laughs> I mean, they were booing. They were throwing popcorn. They were throwing their posters. And every time a scene would come where they would show Vader, they would, the crowd would just erupt with this this visceral reaction. And and so it, it always fascinated me that Vader could stir up so many emotions and so much of a reaction. You know, it's like pro wrestling. Everybody loves the bad guy. Is this a product? Legit question. I've always wondered this, and I think you would, yeah. if anyone, have the answer. Is this a product of the time of the blockbuster era that S- Steven Spielberg ushered in with Jaws, like the idea of a big audience reaction? Did did people react to movies that way, or was this Absolutely. brand new? Absolutely. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, people did overall, but at this particular, I mean, this was this was next level. Yeah. And uh, yeah, people people were literally cheering, booing. You know, laughing together, high fiving each other throughout the whole thing, and it just, it, yeah, it was, it was a big community experience. It always kills me when I see a movie that so moves an audience that they start clapping because I always go, you know, there's nobody here to hear that, right? <laughs> yeah, like yeah. nobody who made this movie is actually listening to you clap, so you're not really doing any good. But, but uh, yeah, this was this was part of that era where people just, it was like a concert. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, short version of all that is I I really love Darth Vader. No, that's loved a, that's a great that. choice, and like I, it's a great illustration of the impact the character had because I, that I have the only experience I've had with anything like that has been uh, what I think is the resurgence of the summer blockbuster that came as a result of the Marvel franchise, um, yes, which ushered in Force Awakens, and Force Awakens had a similar vibe. 
um, mm. that that when I when I saw it opening weekend. But but it it's true. It's just this um, communal thing, and I think the fact that you had the weight of impact and I don't know the weight of um, the legacy of the first film already that had just been such a smash hit. I can see that. Mm. Do you, all right. So uh, number two, do you have a favorite scene in Empire? Ooh. Uh, I I have a couple. Can I can I do a couple? Uh, you can, yes, you you can do <laughs> um, runners up, but you got to pick one. You can change your mind. Oh <laughs> no, I got to pick one. Oh boy. Okay. Uh, I, I okay. My nominees are the the ad ad attack. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's love the ad ad attack. Loved 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 it. Loved as a kid. Still love it now. Uh, love the music. John Williams. I mean, you don't get a lot of piano. No. In uh, in in the Star Wars saga musically, but you do in that. And it makes sense because, I mean, what are you doing? Because they're banging on that piano, right? So, and and that to me, it sounds like it's a great like audio analog for the sound of the of the paws of that walker slamming down on the snow. You know, so I love that. I I love you know Luke having to do these things on his own. I love the harpoon and tow cables. so that's that's one. Uh, the lightsaber battle. The lightsaber battle's huge. Luke, Vader, uh, huge reveal at the end. Um, I love that scene. And then I love I love the prison scene where they're in the they're they're in the cell, and it starts with Chewie and three PO, and then you know Leia gets thrown in. Lando uh, Solo gets thrown in. Mm. Uh, Lando comes in, and there's just there's just a whole. But they're it's like Empire Strikes Back as a movie. It's kind of an encapsulation of the movie because uh, it's it's dark. You know, everybody is at their worst in this in this scene. But at the same time, there's a lot of funny stuff, you know, like Chewie putting three PO's head on backwards. Mm, uh, there's still yep. humor. There's still light to be found there. Um, so those those would be my big three. I think of them all. I think you have to you have to do the lightsaber fight. You have to do the mm. lightsaber battle. Yeah. It it's it's. It's so heavy. It's so involving. It's so uh, breathtaking. It's so emotional. Uh, um, it's so powerful musically, visually. Uh, Mark Hamill. I, I, I I've never understood why that guy gets grief as an actor, because he what played Luke Skywalker, played him to a T. Yeah. Uh, and and his his reactions in that thing are just oh they're they're just amazing. I I I love. And the other thing is. I got the Marvel Super Special the night before I went to see the movie. Yeah. And so I read the comic book the night before. And one of the things that happens, and Jimmy, Jimmy and I have talked about this before, and he mentioned it before I got a chance to in that podcast you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the comic book version, they say, oh, and the, you know, they're going through the fight, and they say, and he, and he slices, he slashes Luke's sword arm. Mm-hmm. And the illustration shows the lightsaber flying away, but the, the hand's not attached to it. Yeah. So I go, okay, well, he knocked, he knocked the saber out of his hand. Big deal. And then I see the movie, and Vader lop, lops that hand off with the saber. And nine-year-old me freaked out. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. even though I knew it was coming, I didn't know that was coming. Yeah. And, and that's you got sort of your own unique version of the, of the surprise, which I like. It was still surprising. Yeah. Even though um, yeah, it was. <laughs> even though you didn't know. Uh, that, that's amazing. Well, and of those three, because you, you mentioned um, the Battle of Hoth, the Carbon Freezing Chamber, like iconic moments. But it's just interesting that yeah. the one you picked is the only one that really changed that much. 
because um, again, this is I'm gonna this is my little little aside I'm gonna do not not too in depth, but um, as I was reading the secret history of Star Wars, um, available on Audible if you go to audibletrial.com/slash/starwarsreport. Yes. But anyway, as I was reading it, um, the section on Empire, unlike A New Hope, had a very um, kind of linear uh, process for the script writing. Whereas yeah. A New Hope had different treatments, it was a little all over the place, and you know some versions looked at like exactly like Hidden Fortress, and other versions, you know, more of a mishmash of Buck Rogers kind of deal. The um, the Empire Empire structure formed over the course of a bunch of story conferences, um, where George Lucas brought in author Lee Brackett, and they went back and forth. They conferenced. They went through really the whole structure of the movie was planned, and then uh, he had his first outline and passed that to Lee Brackett, who did her draft. And uh, he Lucas got got it back. There were parts he didn't like, um, but that was really the main structure of the film was in place as of those conferences and that draft. They they did a lot of polishing, upgrading, p- switching around which characters did what a little bit here and there. But like the overall structure plot of the film, the opening, the Hoth battle, the asteroid chase, like all that stuff was there, except the uh, Vader father scene. The reveal. Yeah. yeah, and that was that was literally between uh, Lucas's uh, first and second draft, where he merged the two characters of what was Father Skywalker in the previous draft, where there were two Force ghosts, and you had Ben Kenobi and Father Skywalker, and he made Father Skywalker um, really just because he wanted to consolidate and make it a little bit less messy of a film. That's how he brought in the idea of Vader being Luke's father. And it's really, you never, I, growing up watching the films, I immediately, I remember watching the Revenge of the Sith trailer. There's like, but over a thousand generations, the Jedi Knights are the guardians of peace and justice, the old Republic. You know, right? And I, it's literally that scene with Obi-Wan, and I'm immediately mm-hmm. relating it to Anakin, a.k.a. Darth Vader. Like, that's how I perceived it coming into the saga for the first time. Little did I know, um, coming into Star Wars, that that was something that Lucas would merge, um, you know, at the beginning of 1978. Um, And it's really interesting to think of, he was lucky enough because he had the archetypes in mind that the figure of Anakin Skywalker, the father Skywalker figure, and Darth Vader were both vague enough and ominous enough. It didn't have to be a, a great detailed backstory when the first when Star Wars came out, but that allowed him to bring those two threads to make Star Wars what it is today. And those those threads that's what kind of gave way of the story of the Clone Wars. Also, all in that kind of one change is what turned Star Wars from this serial sci-fi fantasy adventure uh, in the vein of Flash Gordon to this big family drama uh, Skywalker saga. And that's why I, I love that. It shows a level of brilliance for George. I, it's, it's written kind of in the book as like, well, it's really, it's really just convenient. He just needed to merge the two characters and it was, there you go. Made it simple. And like my take of it is like, it, that's, that's a pretty brilliant epiphany because that's the genesis of what the movie became. So it's funny that that should be your fa- favorite ca- uh, scene. Cause I think it perfectly illustrates George's, input into the movie because we all know empire is a masterpiece for an incredible creative collaboration of a lot of people that made it that film what it is today but that moment right out of the mind of george lucas speaking of which did you, do you have the star wars vault 
You know, I do not. I wish I did. One of the things they have, they have a lot of reproductions in the book. And one of the things they have is a reproduction of the first four pages. This reminded me when you said that. Uh, the first four pages of Lucas's handwritten treatment for Empire Strikes Back. Ah. Wow. Mm, I want it. It's really neat. Yeah, it's really well, the whole the whole book is really cool. Well, and you know my 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 recent phase that has been all this stuff. Like I'm recently getting all the the JW Rensselaer books, all the behind the scenes <laughs> books. I got the storyboards book, um, Power Vith. I need to get the annotated screenplays, um, and I'm just kind of building mm-hmm. that collection as well. So. You know what? I, w- I could I could talk about Empire forever, but I think that's a great way to leave off this episode of the Star Wars Report <laughs> podcast. <laughs> uh, thanks for listening, guys. Um, man, had a great time, Scott. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. This episode of the Star Wars Report podcast is brought to you by Prime Gaming. Prime Gaming is free with your Amazon Prime membership. Right now, you can claim over 30 games that are yours to keep forever, anything from retro and indie gems to the biggest titles. You can also claim exclusive in-game offers for popular titles across PC, console, and mobile, including Roblox, League of Legends, Assassin's Creed, and Star Wars Squadrons. Make a choice. Fly with the New Republic. Change our galaxy for the better. Fall Guys, Ultimate Knockout, and Destiny 2, with new offers released each week. And if you're a Twitch fan, you'll love the chance to support your favorite streamer with a free monthly Twitch TV channel subscription. To learn more about this month's free offers with Prime Gaming, head over to gaming.amazon.com. You're listening to the Star Wars Report. The circle is now complete. All right, everybody, welcome back uh, to the Star Wars Report. And I have on the line right now with me... um, I would say one of my, if not my favorite, uh, Star Wars author when it comes to the behind the scenes of Star Wars. Uh, I've been a long time admirer from a distance on my Amazon wish list of the uh, making of Star Wars books, the original trilogy. And when I got one for Christmas last year, I very quickly devoured it. And then I had to buy both of the other ones. And I have them on my bookshelf right next to me as I record. And I have with me on the other side of Skype, anyway, the author, Mr. J.W. Rinser. How's it going, man? Uh, it's going pretty well, yeah. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on the Star Wars Report. I'm excited to talk to you, uh, really all things Star Wars. You've got, I'm going to lead off uh, right now, as you're listening to this podcast, new book out, All Up, uh, which is... I think could be best described as sort of historical fiction, but based on the space race and the space age. And I think it, it, we're, and, and I, I'm excited to bring, talk to you maybe a little bit more in depth at the end of the interview, but I wanted to plug it up here now. It's on, available on Amazon or wherever you buy books because it, it digs into the, the, the drama of two superpowers in the space race. And when it comes to dealing with the drama of superpowers... <laughs> Sometimes Star Wars has gone through its own uh, its own uh, transition through time, and I'm really excited to talk to you about the a, a little bit about Lucasfilm and Star Wars in a very casual format, just to kind of get your history with the franchise. So what's the story on how you originally got involved with Star Wars and with Lucasfilm? Um, well, uh, b- before I get into that, I just want to say that All Up also covers what's not covered 
usually, which is the first part of the space race, which is all of World War II and the development of the V-2 rocket, ah. and different superpowers. You have the United Kingdom and MI6 trying to figure out what the German army is doing. They, they think they're doing something with rockets, but it, it's controversial because, in theory, you couldn't do anything with rockets. It was mm. considered impossible. So then you had you know, the United States as well involved and uh, the Soviet Union, but it was mostly the UK versus Germany in this first phase. So uh, it covers the whole story. But anyway, so getting to, to Lucasfilm uh, and uh, how I got there, you know, it was definitely something that I had wanted to do since uh, I first started looking for a job. Uh, I applied to ILM back in the late 80s as a matte painter because I was seriously into oil painting at the time. And I thought, oh, I can do matte painting, but <laughs> I was a little bit naive about it. And uh, and then I, uh, you know, life happened. And then later in the late 90s, about ten, a decade later, I, I returned to the United States after being away. And I really wanted to work at Lucasfilm. We were in a town called Petaluma, which isn't that mm. far from Skywalker Ranch, which I sort of slowly figured out. And I, I applied for several jobs till I got a job at Lucasfilm as a nonfiction editor. Also fiction, though. It was both. Um, <clears throat> but in uh, 2001, so they were in the middle. They'd finished shooting episode two, but they were just starting the visual effects and things like that. Oh, interesting. So, and, and that's kind of at the the height of prequel fever i mean the phantom menace had just come out and it 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 it, was it at the time something that um like everyone was was trying to do was it the place to be like um what was the atmosphere like when you actually entered the company in the midst of the making of the prequels there was there was a lot of excitement uh you know and definitely there are people who wanted to work at lucasfilm there always were applications people would throw their resumes over the (laughs) <laughs> over the barrack at Skywalker Ranch, you know. Uh, well, that's one they, way to do it, I guess. Yeah, I, I don't think it worked for anybody, but uh, it was. But it was a it was a real mom and pop operation. That's what it's hard 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 to imagine. Um, it started out as a mom and pop operation with George and Marsha Lucas. Uh, obviously, they got divorced around '83, and um, but it was still a privately owned company and on this glorious glorious grounds which are known as skywalker ranch this huge property in marin county uh, which later just a couple of years after i joined also included big rock ranch mm. which is just about yeah a mile road but the same property and and uh, so it was just it was pe- people were very excited you know episode one episode one had come out and obviously controversial in terms of the critics and and some fans but they'd done very well at the box office and episode two was in you know going full forward and then you know they're already talking about episode three and that's where i got more involved but i was also you know editing the making of and art of episode two books and a whole whole slew of episode two books that was just real exciting my first day there my first full day Mm -hmm. I got to watch a rough cut of episode two on a VHS copy. They just stuck me in a room with a little TV <laughs> and uh, said, you got to you got to know this because you're going to be editing all these books about it. And then that we had lunch in the main house in the dining room of Skywalker and at a table about, you know, seven feet away was George Lucas, Rick McCallum, 
uh, Carrie Fisher and John Williams. So it was like, oh my God, I've, you know, I'm in Oz. <laughs> it was just amazing. That that's that. I mean, it it had to kind of feel surreal, and it, and it does. You you describe it. It feel when you say mom and pop shop, it it does kind of remind me of that uh, in a way that I'm sure it's it's completely different today. But I, actually, if I could nerd out with you for a second, I, I'm curious because you mentioned the sort of mom and pop shop idea and and, and Marsha Lucas's original involvement. Um, in the original trilogy era, and and I'm not I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. I, I'm guessing you are. It, there's a um, there's a, a unofficial book. It's the Secret History of Star Wars. Um, I have a copy. It's right across. It's right across from me over there. But it it's a it's a really it's sort of a um, graduate thesis on kind of exploring and examining all of the various iterations and scripts and development of Star Wars. And it um, uh, it it I, I would actually it, it kind of complements the the making of Star Wars. Um, quite well but it i remember in both that when you talk about the growth of lucasfilm originally something i was just really curious about after reading um after reading it was it seemed like skywalker ranch when you got there in the midst of the making of the prequels had become and was well established to be exactly what george lucas wanted when he was making the original trilogy, it really reading about it originally, it seemed like star Wars was George's way of making his own, you know, Hollywood North Skywalker ranch was the dream that he was working to towards through all of the making of the original trilogy. Um, but it, it seemed like he got to the end of the end of return of the Jedi and it had taken such a toll on him and the family. And, and it's, it seems it's, it's, it's this sort of, dramatic and maybe even bittersweet story that i feel like um hasn't been really told i i don't know if you have any insight into that or if that can describe your experience coming into that and and then going back and looking at to what made skywalker uh, ranch I hope, I hope i'm making sense so yeah so uh george's dream of skywalker ranch was actually a, a, a joint dream that he had with francis ford coppola of starting a uh, film company away from Hollywood, which they started in America with American Zoetrope back in, uh, 69, I think they founded that company together. And that's a whole another story. So by the time star Wars came out, it was already eight years later. And, uh, it, that allowed him to buy the first sort of parcel of land, but it was really empire, which he financed, uh, himself, himself, and uh, which allowed him to then really become kind of uh, Disney-like in the sense that he had these films that he made were, were two-dimensional and ethereal, which you can't mm-hmm. touch, uh, really, although now you sort of can at Disneyland, I guess. <laughs> uh, and then, um, But then he was building this sort of uh, filmmaker community uh, at the ranch, that was his dream, and he poured a huge amount of money. I mean, just mind-boggling amounts of money into it. And it was all very uh, much like a, 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 a dream quest because it was so it was off the beaten track. It's not easy to get to, and uh, it wasn't practical. <laughs> you know, he yeah. had to in so many ways, and yet he he did it, and it and it worked for several decades. I mean, it's an incredible feet and it's so beautiful and i hope that you know it'll be turned into a museum one day i mean i know he's making his own museum down in mm-hmm. la but i i don't know what will happen in you know 100 years from now to skywalker ranch but i hope that it's it's maintained and and, and preserved because it's just fantastic 
And it was a fantastic place to work. Yeah. I mean, it became what he what he dreamed. It, it seemed like a long time before he got there. I, I, I sort of got the sense that uh, maybe he he got to the end of, of Jedi and, 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 you know, faced all the stuff with his family life and the stress of Empire and, and Jedi famously took a huge toll on him. And I mean, he he didn't make films for almost a decade. Um, and I and I wonder if that's if if that's part of it. I, I'm so glad that what he, I, I guess what he saw this this sort of like a paragon of um, of what a filmmaking community could be came to fruition in time for the the prequels. Because because that's that's me. I, I'm a kid of the prequel generation. The first film I ever saw was The Phantom Menace. Um, and, and I loved it. I loved Darth Maul. He was freaking cool jumping around. Like there was so much information thrown at the screen all at once. I wasn't familiar with the universe of star Wars, but I was in instantly intrigued by the whole world of, of star Wars. And, and I just remember, and, and I now have the benefit as I've sort of gotten older and, and gotten more and more into, and more and more of a fan of the original trilogy and the making of those films that it's, it's kind of interesting to see how, it took a long time for him to be able to make that that dream a reality. It took him a long time to, yeah, Skywalker Ranch, they didn't move in till 85, 86, and then it was very gradual, and there was always work being done. It was never, ever a finished project. I'm sure he's doing stuff now. Yeah. Uh, and when I was there, they put in a whole uh, bunch of olive trees. They added uh, screening rooms to buildings. I mean, they... It, was, it just never stops. Um, it's like the Winchester House. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, and then, of course, he bankrolled ILM. I think that's what you're talking about to some, some extent is this filmmaking community where he developed, he he paid for these genius technicians and craftspeople to, what, to create what became uh, digital movie making. Uh, he was a big, big part of that. Yeah, it's and it's it, it's crazy to look at, at at how it became, and then it 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 was its own thing. I mean, think about Jurassic Park and ET and all these other films that ILM was involved with. That they were that was sort of the proving ground. All these classics that uh, he sort of got to ramp up the the prequels uh, on the shoulders of those victories when it comes to like the technological development, which is kind of interesting. Where that that's where you enter the picture. You kind of get the. I guess chance to see this machine uh, in full motion, run, run by the fearless leader Rick McCallum. Because let's not let's not joke around. I get the sense that when it comes to the insane machine that was the prequel production, that was definitely the guy who was cracking the whip. Yeah. He was definitely cracking the whip. He was definitely a producer in the old sense of the word. You know, it was a, you know he was the only producer. There weren't a bunch of associate producers running around or executive producers, except for George, who was bankrolling it. Uh, Rick was running the show production-wise. And, of course, in constant daily, hourly contact with George. Uh, it was. A, I mean, I can't even come close to uh, imagining all the things he was doing on a given day to make sure that these those three films happened. And the Indiana Jones Chronicles before that, that's mm. where they really got to know each other. Uh, which is, you know, you could write a whole book about that TV show. Yeah. It, I was just curious, how old were you when you saw Phantom Menace? Yeah, I was, let's see, I would have been about nine years old. Yeah, about nine, nine ten years old when the first time I yeah. saw it. It's, it's basically prime prime age, I think, to see that movie. 
Because um, I, I and I still to to me it's crazy looking back at the prequels now. And this is almost like um, sub generation or sub uh, cult, subculture, I guess, of of Star Wars fans that are of the prequel generations that spawned. Uh, like if you're familiar with it, the the prequel means Reddit page, like a big gathering of the idea that these movies are very memorable and memeable to people my age, and we love quoting we love quoting random Captain Panaka lines <laughs> or Jar Jar lines, you know, and, and there's just like this, even because they're so, uh, they're so poppy, like they're so pop cultural. In the same way that, in a way that the, that the original Star Wars is, they have so many of these elements of um, popular film throughout them that they're just very action-packed, quotable, digestible adventure films. And that's, I think, as a kid, why I loved them so much. And I and I see the thread now as an adult when I look at the the action sequences and the the peppy fast dialogue of A New Hope, and you know Princess Leia and uh, Solo bickering at each other just like they're you know, Bogart, uh, in an old Bogart movie. Like it, it kind of reminds me of that in the same way that like Phantom Menace, you see, if you watch the pod race, you, if you go back and watch, uh, other classic films like Ben Hur, you get so many like elements that are right out of other old school Hollywood productions. And I, I just love the way that these, those films are so layered and you can really see what those connections and throwbacks are. Yeah. It's a, it's the onion that I talked about in that, in one of in my live stream, yeah, it's George Lucas's onion. He, that's how he described Star Wars. You, know, you peel away one layer, and there's another mm-hmm. layer, and another layer, and another layer, and that was intentional on his part. And, yeah, uh, uh, quite quite an achievement. You know, I, just that part. He he famously, yeah, famously quoted that it was it was this the 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 layered onion approach, which I. I'm curious, kind of on the prequels, and and I'm going to say hashtag sorry, not sorry for so many prequels questions, but it's such a cool opportunity to ask you about it. I, I understand you got to you got to like visit the sets too, right? For episode three, so I pitched Rick McCallum not long after I got there. I'm doing an episode three behind the scenes book that would just chronicle everything, every aspect mm. of the making of the film. And he, in the office that day, said, fine, that's that's what we're going to do. And uh, I really owe him a lot. And I wasn't going to write it. That's another story. Um, but eventually I ended up writing it. But I was taking notes from that moment on. And so, yeah, I was in every, pretty much every art department meeting, concept art meeting, uh, other things that were happening during pre-production. And then on the set for uh, a month in Australia, and uh, I could have been there the whole time, but I had to do my day job, which was still editing all these other books. And uh, and then I was there for the two weeks of the pickups in at Shepperton in England. And uh, and then there were you know the animatics and dailies at ILM and editing. And I got to sit in with Ben Burt and John Williams and George during the spotting of the music. Oh wow! Just. just Amazing, amazing experiences all the time. As I said, we could do a whole podcast on episode three. It was just an unbelievable uh, opportunity, and I'm I'm so uh, in debt to George and, and Rick for letting me basically hang out the whole time <laughs> you know, with a little notebook. It was very low tech. I'd sort of yeah scribble things down and then go write 
them up later and and I wish we could do redo the episode three book so it was more of a coffee table book but that was back then we couldn't convince the publisher to do a big coffee table size book they just they didn't understand that fandom was ready for that kind of stuff yeah I, I like the 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 making of the original trilogy have become sort of a a holy grail of of Star Wars fandom and collecting. Like they, I wasn't kidding about like I remember it being plumped in my Amazon wish list for a long time of just like saving my pennies, and then I eventually just had to give in because that kind of behind the scenes, that kind of behind the scenes access and 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 product just doesn't exist anymore. The fact that what you're able to do with the original trilogy, especially, um, it, it gives you insight into the creative process in this very holistic warts and all approach, which we, we got in the, a lot of the making of documentaries and we got really in the episode one documentary. Um, mm-hmm. But you don't get that with films anymore it, it, with Hollywood films in general. You, you get a much more sanitized version of the production process. And, and to me that just doesn't tell that doesn't do justice to the creative people who are, are, you know, pouring out their hearts and souls and, you know, wrestling with really tough decisions and running into really, you know, rough, uh, you know, production issues. Like that's, as someone who appreciates the final product, I love learning that history. Yeah, well, that's a testament really to George Lucas. He was the one who made all of that happen. And he's the one who is, who also, you know, there are pe- people, directors and producers, some of them like that stuff, some of them don't, you know. They can't all like it. But, sure. But George liked it. He liked chronicling how things were done. It was the anthropological side of him, uh, the kind of legacy side of him. And uh, he was not afraid. It didn't bother him if people disagreed or, you know, was, if, if somebody said there was just something that was completely wrong, uh, then what wouldn't go in the book and yeah. explain why. There was very, very little of that. Um, he was very happy to have opposing points of view as long as his point of view was in there. Um, whereas, you know, now most studios are run by marketing people and this has been true for a long time. And, and even before they, they were not always interested in showing the sort of seedy controversial <laughs> <laughs> uh, as Rick would say, brain damage would go into making a standard movie or definitely a big budget movie. It's a, it's a lot of conflicting personalities and massive egos and people trying to be creative butting up against each other. So it's normal that there's conflict and heartache. Uh, but it's always interested me. And uh, But I understand people who don't want to do it because they think it destroys the magic. So, you know, there's mm. you can argue both ways. It is. It is. And it's I, I've seen both sides of that card now because I, I, I think... Um what we're realizing and I'm going to draw this contrast now I don't know how much this how much you know about it but I think it would really illustrate it for our listeners well I I think if you look right now at two very different processes for telling behind the scenes story and that's the two series on the on Disney Plus one is Disney Gallery of the Mandalorian which walks it's John Favreau hosting a sort of series of roundtables and showing a bunch of behind the scenes on the Mandalorian production and then you have um the making of Frozen 2 into the unknown. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, I'm referencing the making of Frozen 2 documentary. Come at me. Um, but, but if you look at the two differences of the, the process, you see how 
the director, I, oh, I, I lost track of her name. It's not sitting at the top of my noggin. But the director of Frozen 2, she and her co-director and producer bring in a documentary filmmaker and production team into the entire process. And they chronicle the heartache that goes where they, they can't ref- they're having trouble refining the movie and refining Elsa's motivations and what her journey. And, and it doesn't make sense. In the final, what was supposed to be like the big musical number that brings everything together at the end just wasn't working. And they're having meeting after meeting, throwing out sequence after sequence, bringing in actors to record again, like spending millions and millions of dollars trying to figure out this final piece of the film. But it's this, it's this human drama of, the, of creative people. Like they, they're showing the really tense conference meetings where people are fighting back and forth about the creative decisions. And it's, I would dare say, almost as gripping, if not more gripping than the actual movie Frozen 2. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it, whereas Gallery Mandalorian is much more of the the more traditional, I guess, and, and certainly modern approach of, it's a series of interviews of all the filmmakers and, and actors, and they show some cool behind-the-scenes footage, but they don't really show anything in the in the decision-making or the creative process. It's, it's a lot of... Um, and I think I think this is just the nature of, of some filmmakers, is that it, it's easiest to just be very positive and affirming and that's good but you don't really get a full i guess story of of the um of of the heart heartache and sweat and blood and tears that goes into the production and i'm not talking about trying to dig up drama or like conflict or something like that but i really i I really think that's that's missed a little bit today well you know i was lucky in that my interests dovetailed with rick and george's interest in in Mm. creating and doing a a really detailed behind the scenes book. And uh, there's always thing, there's always some things that you're going to leave out for legal reasons and sure. that, that are personal and don't really, you know, the whole world doesn't need to know certain things. Uh, so there's always some gray area. Where do you draw the line? Yeah. And, you know, it's just different for every, every production. Uh, but I've always thought it'd be funny to do a, a mock. Yeah. One of those mock, fan things where people are saying you know the actor whoever the actor is saying oh we got along so well and just cut to the director and actor trying to strangle each other (laughs) (laughs) yeah did you uh did you ever um uh get a chance to see some of the um the dynamics between george and actors because i know he's he's often he's the, the first to admit he's not really an actor's director as much like with empire that's something very much that was the case but it, did you get a sense especially by episode three there was a sort of well-established i don't know i hate i i i don't want like to shine a light on it but i think it's fair to say there's a, a certain level of backlash in fandom and media certainly against the phantom menace did that really did that affect the actors um and people on set or was it still pretty hunky-dory uh, I couldn't say really if it affected the actors. Uh, I mean, certainly they were reading the reviews, but I don't know. I spent the most amount of time with Hayden Christensen. I spent one whole day shadowing him from like from the beginning of his day to dropping him off back at uh, his wherever he was living. So I, I really got an insight into mm. how sort of strange it is to be sort of by yourself and then suddenly on the set with. 75 people all wanting you to perform your scene flawlessly because it's costing <laughs> money and the, the huge amount of pressure. And I remember going, and how do you handle this? And he said, oh, this is fun. And I thought, fun? This is fun? <laughs> so that was an insight to me. And obviously it was fun for him. He, he seemed uh, pretty unaffected in, then in some ways because that has to be a lot of pressure, especially like 
at the time, it's it's the last Star Wars movie. I mean, there's got to be even added pressure to get it right. Yeah, and I remember he was he was stoked to finally put on the Darth Vader <laughs> armor and cape. That was exciting. The whole like everybody who could on the studio premises was sort of crowded around the doors of the exterior doors. Everybody wanted to get a glimpse of him as Darth Vader. Mm. You know, not necessarily doing the scene, but you know, walking from the dressing room, which I think was on. Pretty sure it was on stage, um, but he made maybe he made an appearance outside. I don't remember. Mm. But uh, yeah, it was a, it was a lot of excitement and, and fun in there too. And yeah, George George has always been very clear. He's not one of those movie directors who comes from the stage or something. Who's really more interested in. And some directors are more interested in working with the actors than they are the camera. They let the DP run the camera more or less. Um, George was, you know, George Barry, he said to me, he really did not, doesn't like being on set. He just doesn't like it. And, uh, and it's in the book, episode three book. He comes to the stage, the sound stage one morning and he just says to himself, why am I putting myself through this? <laughs> you know, this is, it's not fun. His leg at that time, I think he had, he had hurt his legs so he couldn't walk you know, as comfortably as he liked and just huge amounts of pressure and, and, you know, legal things happening and, and every, you know, question, a thousand questions a day, mm. which he, you know, which he says, if you don't know that if you're, if you think you want to be a film director, if you don't have a, the answer to that, to these thousand questions in basically about one or two seconds, then you're not a film director. Every one of those questions has ramifications down the line. Yeah, and so it's a it, it's a it's an amazing process. Did George um, wrap episode three? Um, ready to ready to be done with Star Wars? Do you, or do you, do you think that that having what did he always have in the back of his mind, as he alluded to in some of those old interviews from the seventies of of more films, more stories? Or do you think that was, he always thought that maybe other storytellers would, would move forward? Cause I, I know, I think, I mean, it's obvious that his passion for, for star Wars was still there because of his work with the clone wars after, but um, maybe did, did his passion for making star Wars films, was it done at that time in, at revenge of the Sith? I think every, he'd go through a cycle. I think after every big project, yeah, it was like, I'm done. I'm retired. And then he'd slowly get back into it. Then he'd be done, and he'd be retired, and then he'd slowly get back into it. Yeah, that, that basically his mo, uh, which is understandable. And then there was a period, you know, between the original trilogy and the prequels, where he was waiting for visual effects to kind of catch up with what he wanted to see in a movie. And uh, but he was meanwhile bankrolling everything that ILM was doing and keeping close tabs on everything. So it was, oh, I think he, you know, he's like Gene Roddenberry. He created this universe, and then he had fun playing around with it. Uh, I think he really enjoyed doing all the Clone Wars episodes, because yeah. then he didn't have to go to a soundstage. You know, he could just have fun with the writers, fleshing out their stories, read the scripts, and then you know show up in the editing room. I mean, simplifying, uh, but the whole part of painful getting up at 5 a.m. in the morning. And not seeing your family very much, you know, for months on end, mm. all that was gone. Yeah. 
It, it it does. I mean, it makes a big difference. And I think it's kind of like, it's almost like after a, a long vacation that's like ended up being work, you're like glad to be home at the end of it in some ways. Because it seems, I mean, it's got to be so much, such so, so amazing to be working on a Star Wars film. But you got to be pretty pooped by the end of it. Yeah, and he doesn't, he's not a fan, right? He's yeah. Kind of, to him, it's, and believe me, once you're there for, several 12 hour days 14 hour days the magic of seeing somebody with a lightsaber which at this time is just a, a handle with a stick coming out of it the, it, it sort of wears off it never wear i mean for me it never wore off that much but for him i mean imagine this is his sixth movie you know? <laughs> it's not relating to it that way although he was also a kid at heart so i think he did enjoy seeing the sets you know grievous's flagship the set was incredible and uh you know i don't know how much he would admit to that but i'm sure part of him was enjoying some aspects of it <laughs> that's fair well and i think uh, especially when you have the ability to see what you have in your mind come to life like that that's probably got to be one of the, the cooler parts of it for sure yeah and he definitely enjoyed working with all the concept artists you know in the in the and I guess in some ways the most creative phase or the most blue sky phase, that was really fun, you know, with Ryan Church and Eric Tiemens. He was definitely really enjoying that. Yeah. Art. He loves art, and uh, which is why he's making this big museum. Yeah. And uh, pouring hundreds of millions of dollars into it. I mean, it's not a something that everybody does. It's, he's a very unique individual. And, and clearly he enjoyed, I think he enjoyed editing. Although at the end, the last time, we spoke, he said that even editing sometimes was a drag, but mm. I think he might have been <clears throat> uh, not in the greatest feeling that positive towards it at that, that particular day. Yeah, that's fair. Well, and I, I think that that kind of leads to um, at least I was hoping to get your perspective and painting the picture a little bit about what it was like at the company as you guys, uh, not just sort of like the announcement of the new films coming and stuff like that, but like actually the the day of how... How was your experience um, learning that uh, George had had sold to Disney? Was it a surprise to you or the company? I don't know about the the company is pretty broad. I mean, I'm yeah, sure, sure. Some, sure most people were surprised. Uh, I was surprised. I, I've said that I had thought that one day he would sell the company to Disney because I just couldn't see any other company on the in the you know the studios that could guarantee that his characters would live on. I mean, Disney has that reputation and has that lineage. Uh, but I was very surprised when it happened that particular day. I thought it would be 10 years from that day. Yeah. So yeah, it was a surprise. And we all got in cars and buses and vans and drove over to Point Richmond for this sort of goodbye uh, ceremony. It wasn't really a ceremony, but this goodbye talk. It was very uh, emotional. What, it, was George able to like um, give his, uh, his give his farewell, his his sort of, um, I guess, uh, blessing or well wishes to the to the future? Because it's it's got to be this it's this huge turning point for the franchise. And I'm sure all of us, especially as for just me as a fan, I remember hearing it and not being like incredibly surprised. I expected something like that, but again, like you, maybe in in ten years. And further da further down the road, I just imagined he would keep publishing and working on 
television series, maybe work on the live action series that they were working on. But um, right. yeah, it did. It did. What What was his? Um, I guess parting words. Well, I think unfortunately that sort of falls under the NDA. That's fair. It's a little extra on specificity, but I I I guess I just wanted to get a sense of maybe um the what the transition was like. But I, if you can. Yeah. Well, I think I you know, I can say that I felt emotional. Yeah. Uh, I was bawling or anything, but it was uh it was clearly the end of an era. Mm. And the beginning of another era. And at the time I was uh optimistic, you know, cuz Disney I mean, it's Walt, I was thinking, you know, Walt Disney and, and uh, even the second, you know, the wave, which which I seen with my kids, you know, Little Mermaid and Aladdin and Lion King. And it's like, yeah, this could be interesting. Yeah, it is. It's it's, it's interesting because it, it we now sort of have the um, the benefit of short term short term hindsight and seeing what what Star Wars is like now. And, and I, everyone has their own strong opinions about the the current films but i i will say this there's that nothing i don't think anyone would disagree that uh star wars is is very different without without george behind it yeah it, it was in, in inevitable no matter what happened it sure. could not possibly replicate his vision and uh particularly as as he said in the press at the at the in the years that followed that he was essentially uh, ignored, or however you want to put it, and Bob Iger has written in his recent memoir that he kind of regrets how yeah. that happened. I read that, yeah, yeah. I think everybody. I didn't read the book, but I definitely read the <laughs> the um, the excerpts that were in in all the news stories. So it was, you know, but all of that was more or less inevitable, and now it's going to go through probably various cycles. You know, just like the Sherlock Holmes character does, you know, after <laughs> Conan, Conan Doyle, I don't think he ever sold it, but whatever happened, I'm not an expert on that history, yeah. but you know, Conan Doyle's gone through all sorts of, I mean, Sherlock Holmes has gone through all sorts of, uh, incarnations. Yeah. I, I will say not related to the company, but I, I think the, the, the greatest indication and, and that what you're talking about, you're alluding to Bob Iger, just to paint the picture for the audience. If you guys aren't familiar in his new memoir, talked about, uh, George going on 60 Minutes and talking about um, the transition away from using his stories and kind of how he felt in that moment about um, where Star Wars was going. And um, he wasn't happy about it. <laughs> he was he was a little grumpy. And by a little grumpy, he said Star Wars had been taken, taken by the white slavers. A, a, yeah. a comment that he uh, apologized for because I think he was using extreme language because he was trying to illustrate the emotion of the moment, but you can see it. If you watch the interview as he's talking across from his old friend, Charlie Rose, like, um, the emotion was, was real for him. What, what was your, what was going through your mind when you, when you saw that? Uh, what did I, well, I didn't, I wasn't watching it live. I think I heard about it the next day and I just thought, uh, you know, he was, if you see the whole thing, he was, he was sort of exaggerating to make a point. Yeah. And I think, I personally think that, you know, and I don't know what was going on behind the scenes too. There's always stuff going on behind the scenes. Sure. I'd explain why somebody is reacting the way they do. But I remember there were things that happened where people made fun of Star Wars or Lucasfilm. And there were 
people at Lucasfilm would completely freak out. And George would just say, calm down. It's just one person's opinion. And it's a it's sort of it's a free country. People have a right to express themselves. And uh, and he would just say, you know, ignore it and it would go away. Whereas some people get really and I again, there may have been justification for it, but other people want to call out the, you know, the, the extreme recall, calling up the person and, you know, protesting or whatever. I'm not saying that happened, but or, you know, getting your lawyer on the case. So everybody has different reactions. But I always admired George's ability to sort of rise above it. This is the Star Wars Report podcast. And I thought they smelled bad on the outside. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Star Wars Report podcast. I'm your host, Riley Blanton. Uh, So glad that you've joined us for yet another episode. We've got a really, I mean... Honestly, one of the uh, episodes I've been most excited about to share, and I've been this has been in the works actually for a couple months. Um, we've got a special guest, archaeologist, Star Wars author, Dr. David West Reynolds joining us. And he's going to talk all about his time at Lucasfilm back in the 90s and the time of creating the prequels and, and how we got there, which is quite an interesting trek through Tunisia, quite literally. Hope you guys enjoy the interview. This is the Star Wars Report Podcast. Boring conversation anyway. All right, guys, I'm really excited. I, I Actually, that might be a slight understatement i'm ex- i'm extraordinarily excited to have on our next guest uh it's dr david west reynolds you know he's an archaeologist he's kind of like a real life indiana jones he's an archaeologist big star wars fan and you know there's a thing called there's a thing now it's fan tourism but long before you know people like myself were heading out to ireland and skellig michael to see uh luke skywalker's uh, you know, locations in exile. Um, there was there was Tunisia and the original filming locations that were at one time lost to time, and this is the man who found them. Um, we'd like to welcome to the program uh, Dr. David West Reynolds. Thanks, man. Hey, I'm glad to be here. I'm so glad to have you on Star Wars Report. I'm I've um I've been a big fan of your work, and I and I think it's kind of chronically underappreciated, and I think in general. Your your connection with Star Wars and uh, that specific era of Star Wars fandom, its resurgence in the '90s, is um, is something that's kind of lost to time and culture now because now we think of Star Wars in the Disney context, and it, and it's complete ubiquitous cultural. You know, it's it's everywhere. But there was a time where people would just like occasionally ask George, "Are you going to make uh, the next movie?" He's like, "Ah, oh, someday." Uh, and that's where <laughs> exactly. that's that's roughly the time where you through a strange set of circumstances find yourself on the hunt for the original filming locations walk us through that story how on earth did you end up in tunisia okay so i'm an archaeologist i'm finishing up my phd in classical archaeology at the university of michigan and i was studying ancient roman city structure and it was a great dissertation. I was reading a marble map that one of the emperors had commissioned that had every ground floor room in the city of Rome 
carved into this marble map that was 40 feet high and 60 feet wide. So thousands upon thousands of rooms, every staircase, every closet. So I learned how to decode this map and study the urban structure of ancient Rome, which is great fun, but didn't get me the field action that I wanted to, to prove myself as an archaeologist. So I had worked in North Africa. I'd worked in Tunisia. I'd worked in Egypt. And a project in Egypt, we were tracing Roman caravan routes from the Nile to the Red Sea across the eastern desert. Mm. And one of the things that the project found was an action figure from Roman times. It was a little <laughs> rag doll that had been preserved by the desert. And I'm looking at this thing. It's almost 2,000 years old. And I'm thinking the desert preserves everything. And I... I had dreamed about someday going to the Tunisia locations just like just because to, to be in Tunisia would be to be like on planet Tatooine. But mm. I never dreamed that there might be something still there remaining from the production until I was in Egypt looking at that little doll. And that put the germ in my head of there might still be traces left of the production. And this would be worth undertaking a project to go and see. So that's that's what put me on the trail of it. Wow, and this was the, uh, catch us up. So this what what when would this have been? Because this is this is before the prequels, before but after obviously long after the original trilogy. It's in the fallow years, Padawan. And <laughs> Star Wars was dormant, and you know we hoped it was going to come back someday, but we you know you didn't really know. And so this was ninety five, mm. and Star Wars Insider, thanks to John Bradley Snyder, who started that as, a, as an independent production called Star Wars Generation. It, he was the voice crying in the wilderness that, you know, hey, we're still out there. We are the Star Wars generation and, and things have moved on, but it's still important to us. John started that and Lucasfilm saw what he was doing. And instead of shutting him down, they said, why don't you run a magazine for us? Create Star Wars Insider. And he launched the whole thing. He was the perfect person to do it. So my project ended up connected with the insider and that's that's how it ends up connected to lucasfilm but but it for me it went back to the gum cards so so you you're a prequel guy mm. so you you had the internet in your fandom when i started this stuff out all we had was the tops gum cards it was mm. the only way to revisit the world of the film so i would look at those tops gum cards and just fantasize about this world that i'd seen on the screen and the you know an archaeologist riley we can't enjoy a lot of films because an archaeologist is trained to look closely right yeah, i mean sure we look at we look at all the details and and the backstory has to matter we it has to be right it's rare that you get a hollywood production that goes to the trouble of getting those layers in a believable way and i'm looking at star wars on screen and it just blows me away because it felt so real and that's not necessarily something that's that's that important in every production. In a lot of fantasies, it's it's not necessarily realism. But in the first film, before the special edition, in the first film, that realism was so impressive to me. And that's what put it in my mind that I want to be there. I want to set foot in that place. And I was looking at one of the Star Wars cards from Topps, um, 3PO's Desert Trek. And I looked at that and I realized, because on the, on the back of one of the cards, it said the movie had been filmed in a country called Tunisia. And in my young mind, I thought, well, if you could go to Tunisia, then it must be that that would be like being on Tatooine. And, and so that thought from my young self got combined with the to make me think, maybe I could actually go for this. Mm. And and so in your mind, what what takes you from the like oh that it'd be cool to be in Tunisia where you find yourself as a student an archaeology student in the field 
Um, it, I mean, that's that's still an extra leap to, you know, find some of these sites. How do you actually begin that process of like, because I, I, I have the sneaking suspicion there aren't exactly like GPS coordinates that you can just like Google, which obviously. Exactly. And so, so the truth is like, I don't usually tell the whole story, but the truth is I went on a University of Michigan project in the early 90s. And when the project was finished, I thought, I'm in Tunisia. I'm going to look around and see what I could find. And I traveled all across Tunisia and deep into the southern deserts. But what you realize very quickly is a country is a big place to go when you're looking for, like, some sand dunes (laughs) and uh, some canyons. And they're like, yeah, we got canyons. Uh, What do you want? You know, and. And I'm trying to guess at where would the crew have stayed, you know, what roads existed in 1976. And and it's a whole country. Well, it was impossible. Of course, I didn't find anything. I went to so many dune fields. I went to canyons hiking for days on end. Um, I almost got killed. There was there was a person that, that I mean, we got into a fight and he was saying, you know, nobody's going to find your body if you die here because <laughs> they'll never know what happened to you. I mean, it was it was crazy stuff. And so I came back from that realizing I would have to do a lot more preparation if well, I was really going to find David, anything. David, I have to say that the, the Junlin wastes are not to be traveled lightly. Okay, sorry, I had to. Um. And, you know, I, I should have known that, right? I mean, shouldn't that, that phrase have been floating around? But uh, well, no, yeah, that's, that stuff really let's, All right, let's, let's, pause, let's pause for a second. Though. That's kind of insane. I'm not going to – I, I maybe, this is, maybe this is the adventuresome spirit of a, of a young archaeology student. But the idea of, like, you know, I wrapped up my other thing. I'm just going to traipse around Tunisia. Um, like, did you have like a posse with you? Was this, or was this a, a pure solo journey? No, brother, this is just me. And this is the, the, the pocket change I could scrape together, um, just what I could afford. So I'm sleeping on the road and on the side of the road or staying with locals whenever I can. And I, I covered a lot of territory and, you know, my dream was to see evaporator on the horizon or something, but I knew all of that stuff was probably taken away. I just wanted to be in the same environments, but even getting that was so challenging because you're talking about thousands of square miles. So how'd you narrow it down? So narrowing it down turns out to be the science of it. That's what I learned in Egypt. So in Egypt, I learned you don't just go searching across the whole desert. You do everything you can to cut down the search territory. So you narrow things down to where can the camels get water, you know, because the Romans are not going to be going someplace where the camels can't get water. So now you've cut things way down. Are there any literary references to any oases? And so that cuts things down. You know, they've used this oasis. So you're not going to look more than 25 miles from that. So you're you're drastically cutting down the territory. And I knew that's what I'd have to do to, to go back on a serious expedition. So I'm preparing myself like that. And, and also, I mean, one of the first things I do is I get in touch with Lucasfilm. And I tell them that I'm going to try and do this as an archaeologist, as a project. And they were they were helpful. Back before the internet, you could call companies like this. Because they didn't get hundreds of calls from nutcases. Mm-hmm. Places were hard enough to get to. And people had self-restraint that you just wouldn't bother a company, you know, if you, unless you had a good reason. So you could just call Lucasfilm. And, and so I did and talked to them. And they said, you know, they, there's no information. The archivists looked for me. Oh, they wow. Looked, and they, they said, we'll, be, we'll, we'll help you if we can. But they came back to me about a week later and said, there's no information in the archives on any of those locations. They were wilderness sites for the most part. And, um, you know, we know there was the town of Matamata where Luke Skywalker's underground home was filmed. And I knew that from the, the gum cards. But that was it. That was it. And they said, we're sorry. The best we can do is put you in touch with Star Wars production manager Robert Watts. He was the location scout. Mm, and okay. 
they said, I don't know if he will help you, but we'll give you his, his contact information. You can write him a letter and see. And I write him my letter, and Robert Watts calls me from Canada where he's working on a film. And he's very kind. He's a great, great guy. He's, he has an incredible career in Hollywood. He's worked on all these major films. I mean, he was location scouting for James Bond in 2001. And uh, he's got an, uh, just an unbelievable career. And this man takes the time out to call me because he appreciated my letter. So I'm thrilled. But I get, I get information like, oh, David, David, yeah, so Luke Skywalker's home. Yeah, out on the salt flats right yes yes mr watts it's like right well i remember every morning we got up from the hotel we, we go to drive out to that and i'm pretty sure i'm pretty sure that was on the left <laughs> and i get I'm, yeah. I'm writing and i'm waiting and he's like and and what else and he's like no that's it you know and just that one was on the left and, and that's the clues i've got but i did get things like you know you know we filmed Moss Eisley on an island Moss Eisley was an island it wasn't inland and it's like i would never have thought to look for Moss Eisley on an island. So that really cuts down my, my search territory. And he couldn't tell me where, but he said, I, I think it was near one of the ferries. I'm not sure. But I got clues like that. He, he very generously went through, and I had my list. We talked about what he could remember. So it was very little to go on, but it was much better than nothing. Mm. And so it was that preparation. And, I mean, those are the days where you want images that aren't aren't in the, the Lucasfilm Publicity Library. I'm taking film pictures off the television from my Laserdisc because <laughs> that's what you had to do. Yeah, There's no frame grabs. So it, it, something that, that uh, I... I tell people about when I when I tell this story in lectures is that before GPS and before the internet, information could get lost so easily, and most locations got lost because nobody's putting putting money into keeping record of where those things are. Any film, you know, where they where they shot the desert scenes of two thousand and one, nobody knows but Robert Watts. There's there's not an archive for things like that, and you don't have the internet to file all that information and you don't have a gps to mark a location it's very easy for these things to get lost so what happened to the star wars locations was what happened to every movie it wasn't like special neglect yeah and that's that's the point that people don't realize is they they blame lucasfilm and it's like no 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 there was there was no reason for them to archive that information so i went back armed with all of that information and just the determination that i'm not leaving this country until i until i find as much of these as i possibly can and I had my search zones for each one narrowed down. And this time I had a buddy. I had a dinosaur paleontologist. Dinosaur hunters are <laughs> of course you did. anywhere. Mm -hmm. So this guy was up for it. He was up for an adventure. I'd hunted dinosaurs with him in, in the badlands of, California, of Alberta. And uh, I knew he could take it and was not going to fold up. So that's, that's what got us to Tunisia. I feel like this is a great time to kind of help, help listeners paint a little bit of a pic, uh, picture about Tunisia itself. So you're devising these search zones. What does that actually look like? And, and, and sort of walk us through the geography of Tunisia and its location on the planet. Because some, some of us are listening may not even know, like, um, you know, what part of northern Africa it was and why it was chosen by Lucasfilm. But Excellent. Great question. So North Africa is a hodgepodge of territories ranging in danger and interest. Um, so Tunisia is this lovely little stretch of territory. The country is about as big as the state of Florida. And it's nestled right between Algeria and Libya, both of where you will get your head cut off if you show up. <laughs> and so you really want to be sure you're getting off the right, at the right port. <laughs> and it's right across from Italy. 
So like the, you go from the, the, the boot of Italy sort of points to Tunisia. And it's, it's this incredibly diverse little country. It's got all different kinds of territory. So it was a Roman province. So there's Roman ruins. There's ruined Roman cities everywhere. There's a Roman amphitheater. It looks like the Colosseum. But there's also gorgeous desert scenery. And there's rocks and canyon scenery. And then there's also this beautiful seacoast. And it was, it was, at the time, a secular government. So it wasn't run by as an islamic state and therefore it was much more welcoming to the outside world so it was it was sane it was beautiful it was diverse and welcoming and the food was great <laughs> so <laughs> tunisia is a wonderful place to visit and it's very easily connected through paris because it uh, used to be a french colony so tunisia is remarkably easy to visit for for it being a north african location and that makes sense as to why that would be chosen by by the production and the crew is just ease of access Exactly. Like, you know, the Robert Watts was the production manager for Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark as well. And one of the first things he asked when he got the script was to say, OK, it takes place in Egypt. But he said, do we see this, the, the pyramids or the Sphinx or the Nile? And nothing in the script specified that we had to see those things. Then he said, OK, we don't have to shoot in Egypt. And you don't want to if you don't have to, because Egypt is very difficult to travel and work in compared to Tunisia. And he said, we can create Egypt in Tunisia much more economically. It's easy to travel in. We will just fake the Egyptian part. And they did it so well that I mean, I'm an e Egyptian archaeologist. I've worked in Egypt and Raiders of the Lost Ark looks like it was shot in Egypt. So they did a great job. Tunisia is a very filmmaker friendly country. Yeah, that makes sense. And and so you're you're at this point, you've got your buddy and you you're narrowing down your search zones. What was what would you say is the 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 biggest um sense of fulfillment, the biggest discovery as you go through this process? Was there was there really a sort of aha moment? Well, like the the first aha moment was like the, I mean, Riley, you got to understand this feels like a fool's errand. That's the biggest challenge. It's not any of the logistics, yeah. but the idea that this is crazy, that there's no point to this no one's ever done something like this so it must be it must not be possible and even if it was possible what if you did find a location so what do you think you know it's not like you're in the movie and it's it's there won't be any actors there people just yeah. looked at me when i said i wanted to do this like why that's a waste of time and it wasn't until i did this and showed that this is fun i did something that fulfilled something in my spirit that other people could see oh oh maybe i would like that too but so the the real object obstacle was just this the fact that there was no precedent and i could find nothing at all anywhere so when i found the cantina that was the first place the first secure location that i found the cantina in the, the seaport town where they filmed moss eisley mm. that was just hugely validating that it really was here this was moss eisley plaza and as much as it's been changed there's still some pieces of star wars and that's when it also blew my mind to find out that there are pieces of the set still here. I mean, they didn't dismantle everything. They left some of it. And I'm finding pieces of the set of Star Wars. Luke Skywalker walked through this doorway, and it's still here. That blew my mind. Damn. That was surprising. That's, that's incredible. Well, and, and what were some of the, the pieces that you, said, that you saw that sort of gave it away? So the uh, well, the, the cantina I had to identify from a little window on the side of the dome. So um, when they pull up to the cantina, there's there's a great uh, publicity shot of it. Star Wars was beautifully 
perfectly covered by John Jay on the stills. If you compare that with any of the other Star Wars movies, you will see that there's a wonderful library of stills for Star Wars. And that's because John Jay, the unit photographer, was just brilliant. He was on top of everything. And so the, the, the top set reflects his talents. And it means that it was a wonderful set of reference for me. So you've got the droids standing outside the cantina saying, I don't like the look of this. There's a funny little window on the side of the dome that was distinctive and that's what pinned the cantina but i start looking around and in junk piles i see fiberglass and i see vacuform plastic and so like as they walk into the cantina when luke says you know are you sure about this place you see three drunk jawas sacked out in front of the cantina so the door that they were sacked out in front of was still there the door frame that luke walks through to go into the cantina was still there so that I just never imagined that that was going to be the case. The little domes they'd added, the production took real Tunisian architecture. That was the whole reason Robert Watts and John Barry sold George on the idea of shooting in Tunisia was because the natural architecture in Tunisia in, in a few spots, the native Ibadite architecture, the particular style they have there, it was foreign, but not, it didn't look Arab, it didn't look Greek, it was kind of a blend, it didn't have any specific decorations that gave it away as any yeah. particular earth culture. So they thought, we'll just come in and dress the existing architecture, and that's going to give us production value far beyond the very small budget we actually had to work with. So Norman Reynolds is the, the, the he does the, the construction side of things, but Roger Christian gets the job a set decorator of creating the used universe look and it's so careful he's using all of these pieces he and john barry working together to dress this existing architecture and turn it into moss eisley with the minimum of effort but they disguise its origin so well that you'd think the whole thing was constructed for the production oh wow so and it, and it, it makes sense because it, it kind of it creates that look that's so um iconic now that element of uh tatooine that we've now, you know, as, as, as fans, we've seen it in, throughout the different films and, of course, then reconstructed in glorious 4K detail in the most recent Battlefront game and everything in between. It's kind of amazing how um, it's an element of local culture that's now exploded into the mainstream just because of Star Wars and, like, all of these instantly iconic shots. I, I, saw, I, I saw a shot of you where you, you did find, where, when you found the homestead and you found the very spot where Luke Skywalker gazed off into the twin sunset. I just have to ask you, what, what was that like when you found that spot? Um, that I mean, honestly, one of the most iconic moments in the entire film. It's the literal you know, call to adventure moment, but it, it, in, a, in a location. It, it was the hardest thing to find because you've got hundreds of square miles of salt flat. They all look the same. And since Star Wars had been filmed, German off-roaders had been coming out to the salt flat and using it for, you know, just driving four-wheel vehicles and Land Rovers. So I had, I had hundreds of tracks to follow. And I just had to spend weeks tracking down each of these tracks into the desert, into the salt, and finding whether it led to anything. And I've been looking for crater rings that are like a foot and a half high. That's it. And so this is, again, every one of these things, as I went across Tunisia, each new place that I searched for was a whole different set of search techniques. I had to use geological evidence here. You know, in Moss Eisley, it was architectural evidence. Um, I was using geology to find the jungle wastes. And with the salt flats, I was using logistics. You know, where could the film crew get to? And that's actually when Robert Watts's clues actually came in handy. Mm -hmm. I mean, if I'm going from the Tozur Sahara Palace Hotel 
and we're driving out towards Algeria. Well, if I'm only looking on the left, that that's cuts my search territory in half. I'm not looking on the right. So that was really helpful. But yeah. finding that was so hard, and nobody with me thought that was possible until I saw these ripples of heat ripples on the horizon. And it was from, you know, two miles away. But as soon as I saw them, like my heart jumped because I knew this is it. I have found it. This is Luke Skywalker's homestead. And I walked out there the whole time. I didn't have to see it. I knew we had found it. And to, to, to get to the edge of those crater rings, I mean, this is after a long day, after the end of many long days. But I stood there and I felt my life changing. I felt that, you know, where I had been, who I was, that was different than what I was about to become because nobody had done this before. It was really unprecedented. And I mean, nobody had set foot here since Mark Hamill left that site. And I felt all of that. I felt, you know, it was like being on the moon. Yeah. I'd spent all the money I had to get here, you know, and there was intense pressure on every minute of the time I'm spending here. But and, and it seemed like like Luke feels where he feels like I have no direction. I, I can't ever get out of here. It's I don't know where I'm going. And that, that moment is where he's he's feeling that he's looking out to, the, to the, the sons. The only beautiful or inspiring thing in his life is something far away that he can never touch. But we know as the audience that the adventure is about to find him. And when I'm standing there, it's sunset, you know, and it's it's all happening around me. And it's. It's like I walked into the movie screen. I hoped to come and look at scenes that looked like what I saw in the Star Wars cards. I didn't dream that I was going to walk into the movie. I, yeah. I didn't know that was going to happen. That's what that felt like. It is. It's so fascinating how, um, and, I, and I think it's different for different people, but but at least speaking for me, how, how in my mind, in my heart, it, there are certain stories that have, have come, certain mythologies that have kind of implanted themselves in 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 myself and, and shaped how I view the world. The stories of Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, um, the Chronicles of Narnia, yes. these, these stories that I just grew <laughs> up with that have sort of became a part of me. And in the element of Star Wars, there's a, there's a very powerful visual element. So for myself, when I've, um, the few sites I've ever been to, uh, David, are, are the first time I ever did this was um, I was traveling with my, my family, with my mom and dad and sister, uh, right after we graduated college, we all did a big family trip, a sort of like one last time, big family trip together. And, um, and there was a sort of sense of finality to it throughout that trip. But I'll, I'll never forget just, um, entering, uh, going off to Skellig Michael right off the coast of, uh, Ireland and, and just seeing the, the cultural power of the history that exists in that island and these monks that, you know, made a living, eked out a living on this remote, you know, island hiding from the Viking mm-hmm. warriors. Um, and at the same time, there's that that's even separate from the impact of of seeing what I saw on film in The Last Jedi. But frankly, that has nothing, doesn't hold a candle to when I um, did a road trip up I-10 to go find and, and experience some of the filming locations for Jedi up in the Humboldt Red uh, Redwoods. Um, yes, yes. And, and I and I just it's hard to describe because in in some ways when you're saying it out loud you're like this is this ridiculous? Like I'm just going to the places where it's cool trees because you saw the cool trees in the movie. But for me, it sort of it 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 really surrounded myself with and removed me from the distractions um, of the real world 
that could kind of put me back in touch with these stories that have have changed my life so much growing up and in a way that has never been the case going to a Star Wars convention or reading a Star Wars book or watching the movies it's it, it is a really surreal experience to be standing where the film was filmed uh- I'm so glad you appreciate that because, you know, nobody did when I set out. I mean, I talked to other fans and I didn't get enthusiasm. I just got, that's pretty crazy. Well, I have a good time, but, you know, it's just weird. And, but, but I'm glad once you've experienced it, you know what that is. It's, it's the same as, like, I've got friends who, you know, I had I, I one brilliant friend who went and who saw Conan and came back away from that movie thinking, Conan has a great sword. I need a great sword. I need to learn how to forge. So he buys a forge and metal and forges his own sword. And he's got a sword that's brilliantly made. And he forged that thing. And to him, that's entering the universe of Conan, you know, a hand-forged sword that he made. And that's the way he vivified the movie for himself. There are so many ways. We used to just approach things as collectors. And, you know, that's a wonderful way. It works for many of us. But now we've got cosplay. And now we've got pilgrimage. And there are other ways whether it's craftsmanship or you know all these other approaches whatever vivifies your experience my quest was to live the experience of the movie more fully that's that's all it boils down to and that's what you lived in in the humble mountains right yeah you know that it's it's vivifying the experience so whenever i study these things whether it's archaeology or star wars it's i'm trying to get as deeply into that experience as possible and it just turned out that the locations were a very powerful avenue for that for me oh for sure for sure and and kind of rewinding you talk about that moment uh, finding the homestead it kind of does end up being a transformative moment for you because fast forward um, you find yourself in the hallways at Lucasfilm. How on earth did that happen? I get home from this expedition. And as an archaeologist, you go on an expedition. Well, you write up your findings and you publish them, right? But I can't take this to Archaeology Magazine. So I think, well, I'll try Star Wars Insider, see if they're interested. Well, you know, as a researcher, you submit your findings and you, you wait to hear what the editor thinks. And the editor of this journal called me and said, dude, that r- and John Bradley Snyder just loved this. He'd never heard of anything like it. And he said, I'm giving you the cover. I mean, this is the lead story. This is fantastic. And because it was in Star Wars Insider, exactly at the time, and this is one of these fake things, just at the time when George Lucas had said to Rick McCallum, uh, Rick, you know, we're going to be we're going to be shooting the prequels uh, eventually here. And uh, I want you to go to Tunisia and revisit the locations that I used and find me some new ones. I'm going to need some slave quarters. But, you know, size all that up for me. And let's see how things look now. And we'll we'll scout things up. And Rick <laughs> says, okay. And goes to the archives and says, hey, I need all the location information from Tunisia. Okay, guys. And they say what they told me, that we don't have any. Well, you don't go back to George and say, we don't have any information. Nobody does that. And Rick's trying to figure out, now, am I going to have to slot all over this place? What am I going to do? Somebody throws a magazine on his desk. At Skywalker Ranch. Yes, really. And says, Rick, didn't you say something about locations in Tunisia? Look, some kid went and found them all. And he said, you have got to be kidding me. Although there's probably a little more. I was going to say, knowing knowing Rick, I'm guessing it's a little more colorful. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So it was was richly colorful. But you get the idea. And so I get a warning call from John Snyder. It's like, dude, Rick McCallum's going to call you. And we end up negotiating a deal where I become his location scout. 
because they didn't have anyone else to go to. And it was going to save them an incredible amount of time. Mm-hmm. So it was this it was this great conversation where, you know, he wanted to fax me some maps and said, you know, I'm going to fax you some Tunisia maps. Mark X is on these things. OK, and just fax them <laughs> back to me. We're just really going to help us. Love you. This is great. And I, I'm really excited because I'm talking to Lucas. But like I'm broke. I mean, I spent everything I could, everything I had on this. And it was, you know, a project it took me weeks and weeks. And I think, am I gonna, am I gonna stare down Lucasfilm? Is that what you're gonna do when you get a chance when Lucasfilm comes calling? But I call Rick back and I say, Rick, you're an important guy. I, you know, I don't want to waste any of your time. Maps are very imprecise, and X is so vague, and country's so big. You don't need a map. <laughs> you need a guide. <laughs> well played. And uh, there's this pause, and it's like, so that's how it's gonna be, is it? <laughs> and, and I say, you know, yes, and he respects that and says, well, you know, but I'm leaving in like two weeks, you know, can you get packed? And I said, Hey, I'm an archeologist. I'm always ready to go. And I was, so he was like, if you're really up for this, then come on, let's go. And he was not sure what to expect because it was so bizarre that somebody would have done this, but we end up having such a good time together in North Africa. Um, that, I mean, that was, if I thought the first expedition changed my life, the real watershed was Tunisia with Rick McCallum because he taught me a whole different way to be. He had, he had confidence that you can see from the moon. I mean, yeah. you know, have you dealt with Rick? Is that right? Have you, have you interviewed him? I, I have, have not, but you saw that we just him? got off a couple of weeks ago. I had a chance to talk to J.W. Rensler, who I know was at Lucasfilm around the same time. And and he and he very much characterized Rick as a he's a classic Hollywood producer in the sense that we don't really get anymore. He's like he's the guy who gets it all done. That is absolutely the case. So like you know when a picture gets best picture Oscar, that goes to the producer because he's the one who made it happen. And Rick McCallum made it all happen. It was it was incredible to watch this guy in action. And I mean I was getting a PhD, but but seeing him in action just taught me about a world I'd never known before. He lived so richly and powerfully and confidently that he just accomplished so much for himself and for everyone around him. It was incredible to watch. And it just, it, it, it you know, this is like the, you know, when this, when the student is ready, this teacher will appear. He taught me a new way and we got along so well together too, that that was neither of us expected that. And that works out into an offer of Skywalker Ranch. And I've just finished a PhD that I spent six years on. I'm planning to be a college professor. Why would I do that? Mm. These were some of the best communicators in the world. I wasn't, I would not do this for fandom. I mean, I had a serious career to manage, but I thought these people know communication. They can reach everyone. I want to learn that from the best in the business. So I took the job for it to be at full time at Skywalker Ranch on that basis. And once I get to Skywalker Ranch, I have this unique position as, oh, Rick McCallum brought this guy. So I could do anything I wanted <laughs> at Skywalker Ranch. It was incredible. It gives you, I mean, it gives you so much freedom uh, right off the bat. What were what were some of the highlights? Because we're going right into the, I guess, I, I mean, what, we're a year out, maybe two years out from the filming of The Phantom Menace? Right. So, so we're, it's, uh, we've just, by the time I'm hired, we have just done the special editions. So Rick was working on the special editions when I first met him in North Africa, and they work on those projects while I finish up my PhD and some other affairs. So by the time I take the job, 
we've seen the special editions, which were the to trial run for the prequels. George wanted this mm-hmm. effects capabilities in place before he was prepared to make those movies. But once once he had proven to himself that I have that ability to put on film anything I can imagine, he was go- going ahead. So I was part of the team hired specifically to launch the prequels. So the 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 special editions had been a trial run, but now we were about to do full-on production. So Lucasfilm was picking its team, and it was an incredible time to be at the ranch because the world was so excited that Star Wars was coming back to life, and Lucasfilm could pick anyone they wanted. So to be there was to be surrounded by this incredible talent. Everybody you ran into just knew their game, and it was such a pleasure to work with these people in this this setting where everything looks like a matte painting. You can't believe any of this stuff. So so the Skywalker Ranch, I'm sure Rinsler talked to you about it. It's just, it looks like a movie, the whole place. And they give me an office. So I get an octagonal office. Five of the walls are glass. And I've got a huge stone fireplace. And who's my office mate? There's only two of us in this giant octagonal office. I'm creating StarWars.com. And the other guy over there is somebody you may have heard of named Steve Stansweet. Oh, Yeah. So he's my office mate the whole time I'm at Skywalker Ranch. And he's just like one of the best people you could ever meet. Just super cool guy. Um, amazing to work with. So it was just superlative land because it was Skywalker Ranch at its height. George is back at the, in the saddle. George is going to make a new Star Wars movie. It was thrilling, exciting. And I had this carte blanche to go anywhere I wanted and get into anything I wanted. So, you know, let's go to the archives. I want to see the lost cut of Star Wars that John Jimson did that that uh, caused such fuss. You know, it's a totally different cut of Star Wars with like, I don't know, 30, 40% different fans. You know, I want to get into the archives and check out the props and all of these things. I mean, I just did anything I want to. I could go to George's private theater in the basement of the main house and say, put on Star Wars for me and watch it. And mm. stuff like that was just my daily life at the ranch. It's crazy. And it's funny because you find yourself at the center of what, what George had worked through the whole original trilogy to build. Like his whole vision, really the whole funding that he wanted to use for Empire and Jedi was was for the ranch, for this oasis, this Hollywood North that would um, that could allow creatives and filmmakers escape the clutches of corporate, you know, L.A. And, and you find yourself in the center of it. That's amazing. It was. The, the only disappointment was that we, a lot of us had thought that it was going to be just what you said, like a community, but it was very much just, you know, it wasn't a place where other people could create, except the Skywalker Sound. So we had Skywalker Sound where, you know, James Cameron comes to mix Titanic while we we're there. And, yeah. you know, you run into Robert Redford working on his projects and that's cool. But um, I was surprised that it was it was pretty restrictive. Uh, that, you know, we're just doing Star Wars and we can't shoot any actual footage. Like, I did a whole little documentary that had to go in, back into the can and get hidden because, um, you know, the, the locals did not want George doing any production at the ranch. So anything that even sounded like it might have been a soundstage, you know, would get George in trouble. So we had to, we had to put a nix on all of that stuff. Um, so, we, you know, it was, you're walking a tightrope of appearances, um, which was too bad. But as far as the Star Wars productions go, though, you had everything and that art department with Doug Chang and Terrell Whitlatch and uh, Robert Barnes. I mean, it was it was just wonderful to watch these people in action. And I have to tell you this story. So I'm at my desk. I, I built StarWars.com from just about nothing. And I was pretty proud of that. In two years, we were setting records with that site. Mm. And the, uh, the, the publicist, 
Amy Cole comes bounding into my office one day. She's this glamorous Hollywood wood blonde, um, looks like you would expect a studio publicist to look beautiful, and um, comes in and she says, how tall are you? And I say, I'm like 5'11", I think. She's like, get down to the archives. They need you there. You're, you're late. And <laughs> this is the kind of thing that happens. So I get down to the archives and I said, where am I going? Do I need a camera? She said, it's for a fitting. Hurry up. They'll tell you. I get down there and there's somebody holding a jetpack. And I've seen that jetpack before. And there's somebody holding a blue-gray jumpsuit. And they say, oh, is it you? Here, put this on. And it's the Boba Fett costume from Empire. And they never get this out of the box because there's only, I think it was like two and a half suits for what remained after Empire and Jedi. And they're so complicated that it wasn't like Darth Vader or Stormtroopers or Imperial officers where there'd been a lot of copies made. This was it. They'd never been able to copy them because they were so you know, detailed and intricate. Yeah. And, but it was one of George's favorite characters. And they wanted to surprise him at the Smithsonian when it was going to have the first showing of all of the props and costumes and the ILM models that uh, we were, that was the first display of all of those things in public. And so they were going to have a big show at the beginning at the VIP gala opening. And they had Dave Prowse record, uh, not Dave Prowse, sorry, James Earl Jones record uh-huh. the lines for Darth Vader and Darth Vader stage surrounded by stormtroopers and Imperial officers. And I see you have captured my TIE fighters. We're in Washington. DC, <laughs> VIP event, black tie. I've been in my, my tuxedo all night covering the event for StarWars.com. But Darth Vader goes up to the stage. I hit my watch. I go in and make my change. Darth Vader's talking. I get in position. He's saying, I see you have captured my TIE fighters, my Imperial walkers. But to make sure that nothing happens to these Imperial possessions, to protect them, I have hired the best bounty hunter in the galaxy. And a spotlight comes on in the gallery up near the Spirit of St. Louis and the Wright Flyer. And it's me as Boba Fett with my EE-33 blaster rifle leveled at half the senators in Washington. (laughs) Can you believe that stuff? Many people might be jealous of your position right there. (laughs) It Um, was incredible. And this was back before cosplay was was like people didn't do that back then so it was fascinating to walk through this black tie audience and watch everybody treat boa fett not like a movie character but they treated him like he was a dangerous son of a gun (laughs) i (laughs) I mean senators would look at that visor and like they give birth (laughs) it was fascinating i mean it was fascinating it's at the center and especially when you're talking about like 97 98 99 the the hype leading up to Phantom Menace, like wh- where where I entered Star Wars fandom, where I first became a, really aware culturally of Star Wars, and and it's sort of the it's the genesis of what we now think of as fandom, which which I feel like is different in so many ways. Like I know with with Star Wars dot com, that was you you guys released uh, uh, many people I, I'm sure have I remember trying to download the uh, the trailer to the Phantom Menace that teaser trailer. Um, yes, you, but you guys are, were, were you guys just kind of making it up as you went along? Was there a grand plan for like making Star Wars, you know, invent internet fandom? Cause that's basically what happened at the time. That was my job. So my boss was Jim Ward, who had a, he had brilliant original plans of how to make Star Wars more broadly culturally accepted than just in nerd fandom. So he got us in in style magazine 
mm. in you know Vogue and Popular Mechanics. Um, I was in the cover story of Popular Mechanics. He said, "What, well, David? You're doing these cutaway books in the evening." So in the evening, I go home from Skywalker Ranch and I'm writing these books for DK and creating all of this backstory and figuring out how the Millennium Falcon works and laying out all the corridors and the blockade runner. That's what I do on the evenings and weekends. And Jim Ward had seen this and he said, what is all this stuff? I, I, we, you can, we can make something out of this. I bet Popular Mechanics would print this. And he calls them up and they come out and they do print it. And, you know, I'm interviewed for that. So Jim Ward had this idea of, of getting Star Wars more broadly lodged in public consciousness. But it was my job to make it work for the Internet. And we had nothing before it. We, I, I had to build StarWars.com from pretty much nothing. And so when we created that trailer, I'm the creative consultant for that trailer. Mark Merka is the editor. I'm the creative consultant. And we cut that thing. And it was a we cut that trailer for the movie we wanted to see. We knew the real movie was not quite what we made it appear to be, but we knew what the fans wanted. And we wanted to tell them, guys, there are people in here who know what you want. We're going to create the trailer to let you know there are people in this production who understand what you want. And it's, you know, George was raising children at the time. So his sensibility was skewing younger at a time when fans like myself were getting older. So there was a disconnect there. You know, we, sure. we, those who had grown up with with a franchise were looking for deepening. And George was starting at the beginning with, with kids. So I understand what he was trying to do, but... There was, you know, there were there were people that were frustrated at, at, at what he was doing. And I was trying to bridge it for every audience. So yeah, I'm, I'm trying to welcome everybody. So we cut that trailer and, and carefully tried to build that as an Internet event. And I got Steve Jobs saying that, you know, this was the biggest download Internet event in the history of the Internet. That was my site and my trailer. That was so mm. exciting. Yeah, it was pretty wild. Right? Long before, long before YouTube was a thing. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, because you didn't have those alternatives, and you know, the download, you're waiting for the download so you can see the thing. It was so before high speed connection, so everybody was a lot more patient. But yeah, this is listen. We, if, if people remember, this is I remember this is the era of Napster, and my dad like downloading a bunch of, of mamas yes. and papas, <laughs> pirating a bunch of mamas and papas <laughs> and Bob Dylan albums. So. Yes, it was a different world, but like we, you know, that's where we, we learn things about how do you build an internet audience. So I would, I had this huge audience where everything that I wrote, that I or my assistants or the writers that worked with me, everything we wrote, we could track the statistics. And like just the idea of developing a site by tracking the statistics and checking engagement and all of that, we were pioneering that stuff. You know, we, we would, would do these things and do analytics and say, oh, okay, if I've got the same content, but I parcel it out in little bits, you know, every two days, that gets me a bigger audience in the end than if I dump the same content all at once. And, you know, nowadays, this is just standard operating procedure, right? But nobody knew it back then. We had to figure it out. Yeah, no, that makes, I mean, it makes sense. I, I Did you, so as we actually move forward into the, the, the filming did you find yourself on the set of um, of the prequels, any of the prequels? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. And so I would go over to Leavesden a couple of times. Okay. And I would do interviews. So I did interviews with the stunt coordinator and had Nick Gillard train me in lightsaber combat. And I worked all of that training into an article for Star Wars Insider where I created the seven different forms of lightsaber combat and and developed that more in one of my DK visual dictionaries. So, I mean, the the opportunities were just extraordinary. I mean, I learned that on the Nemoidian battleship uh, set, mm. you know, and, and Nick's, Nick's teaching me, you know, duck, turn, dodge, parry. And 
and then I go and talk to Ewan McGregor about, you know, what are you, what are you putting into Obi-Wan Kenobi? And then talk to Liam Neeson about midichlorians and, um, you know, and hang out with Natalie Portman and, you know, watch her in a battle scene. And she's putting her face around the corridor, around a, a column and the column's getting blown up and action scenes. I mean, that was just, that was what it was like. It was incredible. Was, um, what was the, I guess, anything that jumped out to you about the, the, the culture on set of The Phantom Menace? Because I know, in, inevitably, you know, whenever we're talking about the prequels, you have to at least pay homage to some of the backlash. And you sort of alluded to it when you're talking about the, uh, the trailer. Mm-hmm. But was there, was there a difference in the culture at Lucasfilm, maybe even the culture on set versus Phantom Menace versus later as, as uh, after the movie came out and prepping for Attack of the Clones? Well, like... It, uh, when you show up to work on the production, one of the first things that would happen is you get locked in a room and you hand it the script because you've got to get up to speed. And as soon as I read the script, I foresaw everything that happened about, you know, there's this is not going to be just a, a film that straight makes everybody happy. There's going to be issues because George is making this for a young audience and we see it as a multi-audience film. But he's very much shooting for kids because he wants that audience to grow with the, with the merchandising. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it worked he, by the way, I'm, I'm proof of that, but <laughs> <laughs> he, he knew what he was doing. You got to hand it to the man knew what he was doing. I think George Lucas is at least three different kinds of genius. He's a creative genius. He's a technological genius and he's a business genius. And it's, it's truly impressive that I got to, you know, be in a cafeteria with this guy. And he, like I had lunch with him and three other people at the table once and just, he was that accessible. So he's an extraordinary man and tremendously talented. But when I'm reading the opening crawl and the taxation of the outlying trades routes is in dispute <laughs> and a lot of the other things, I realized this is not, not what I was expecting. And I knew there were going to be issues. And so I had to choose how to handle that in the marketing. And the road that I chose was never to lie to anyone about what was happening I would talk about Doug Chang is a brilliantly talented guy. You're going to love these designs. I would say Ben Bird is back. You're going to love these creative sounds and things like that. I wouldn't, I never would say this is exactly the movie you've been waiting for because I knew it wasn't for everybody. And eventually I got to talk to George in his office. I got him all to myself for an afternoon to ask him every question I ever wanted. Can you believe that? The only Star Wars artifacts he had in his office were the Dejaric chess figures. Everything oh, wow. else is like 1920s mission style. Yeah. Fascinating. And that was when I finally understood that Star Wars had never been what he intended it to be. Hmm. What it ended up being that was so captivating for me, it was gritty and realistic and something I could believe in. That was an accident of people not understanding what he really had in mind. He wanted light and fun and, and you know, a little bit silly. That's what he liked. And it was just so difficult to make Star Wars that it, it just didn't quite come out that way. So, almost so, you know, that I love, that I worship was so fulfilling and inspiring to me that it was never that rewarding for George. Mm. He had much more satisfaction making Phantom Menace than he did making New Hope. So, I came to understand that, well, okay, so what Star Wars works for so many different audiences. This is part of the creative genius that a lot of it is Rorschach. You know, we're seeing in it what we want to see, and you can see different things in it at different ages. Yeah. So you see the prequels when you're at just the right age to see that. You're yeah. not disappointed. You're having a great time, right? And that's fine because George's creative genius was so deep that it makes that possible. 
And so it's not going to be what everybody wants all of the time, but the fact that it allows so many different points of entry for so many different ages and so many different life situations, that's the difference between genius and just somebody who's good at cranking out media. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because George has, has always been so like probably the most critical person of, of the original Star Wars. And, you know, I'm sure that's why he went, returned to it time and time again to update, change, make the edits that he always always kind of almost obsessively wanted to do because it just never was quite what, what he had in his head. It, it's, it's more than that. I mean, he was really frustrated. He had a miserable time. I mean, he was fighting a lot of the crew, which is really too bad. They, they just A lot of them didn't support him. There were people like John Barry in the art department and Roger Christian who were very supportive. But there were a lot of the crew that did not believe in what he was doing, and he had an uphill battle. And so he didn't get on film what he intended. And so he was always surprised that we all loved it so much. But <laughs> he had he had assembled this team of brilliant people working at the top of their game. Ralph McQuarrie and John Mallow's costumes. I mean, Ralph McQuarrie's production design, it's steeped in, in his knowledge of Boeing and NASA and John Mallow's knowledge of military history that he brought to the costume design. And Ben Burt's completely original sounds and John Williams' music transformed the mu- movie into something that you could take seriously. And John Steer's disappointed in a lot of ways, but he made the laser battles and things so yeah. vivid and realistic. I mean, it was visceral. Star Wars was visceral because of all these people contributing. And we didn't have that again later because those were not things that were important to George. So, yeah. the you know, we get to Phantom Menace and we've got a big battle in, in the, the Naboo hangar. And, you know, we're not seeing blank charges blow out of these guns. And we're not seeing big, heavy, you know, sterling submachine guns like Roger Christian dressed for Star Wars for the Stormtrooper rifles. We're seeing, you know, little toy guns. And we're not seeing things that fire blanks and fill the air with smoke because that viscerality is, is a pain. You know, you, you can't just say cut and start over. You've got to blow all the smoke out of the set. So these things are, mm. are difficult. And it was an, a difficulty that, you know, George was happy to dispense with. So... Yeah. What Star Wars was was partly accidental, but it was accidental because there were geniuses involved. And George got to remake Star Wars with Jedi in many ways, and that was closer to what he wanted. But Phantom Menace was round three at telling the Star Wars story, and that was the one he was most happy with. And understanding that, realizing that, that's like, okay, the guy who's behind all of this, he's not the total author of what spoke to me. It was this you know, joint production. It's, it's, sure. it's the composite work of so many people. That's the nature of movies. But it was interesting for me to finally understand that. I it, don't know. Does that make sense? No, it does. It's, it's, it's one of those things that it's, um, it fascinates me because it's such a distinct chapter of Star Wars that I find fascinating. And I, I think it's undercovered um, in a way that the, the you know, I, obsession, rightfully so, of the uh, original trilogy and the behind the scenes and the documentaries that we've gotten over the years, the one we only really get that one. Uh, the Phantom Menace had this incredible behind the scenes documentary that w- was released with the home video release um, in the beginning, the making of Episode One, and it really chronicles the the hardships and the ins and outs of that movie production. And and it's, I've always been sad that we never got one of those for Episode Two or Episode Three. 
Well, John Shank, I think that's his documentary, right? I mean, he dumped an incredible investment of his life energy into making that. And that's why it was not something you could just you could just order up another one of those. I mean, that's a real filmmaker, you know, creating a work of art with with a lot of his life energy. So um, that's why we were lucky enough to see that. But mm. wow, what a lot of work that was. I had and, I had no idea. Well, I, I have to take you uh, maybe take a, a bit of a left here. I turn here. I know. Um, man, I wish I wish we could have you for another hour, and we'll just have to have you back on the show to, to talk more because there's so many amazing stories I'm sure that you have. But I have to ask you now. I will bring it forward to the present. We won't do entirely uh, reminiscing, but um, you you talk about key figures like Rick McCallum, like Steve Sansweet, um, like yourself. Like, what was what was the transition? I know I think uh, your transition away from a more active role at Lucasfilm probably happened before the Disney purchase. But um, what what is just your your thoughts on on Lucasfilm's evolution into the Disney era? And the and the recent films. What would you say are some of the maybe similarities we don't think about? And and obviously there've been a lot of discussion on the differences. Hmm. Well, the similarities are harder to talk about. Um, I mean, it was it, it was a change that was so fundamental that we didn't we didn't we felt something was happening, but we didn't recognize how fundamental that change was going to be. Because mm-hmm. with with the prequels, you know, there those of us who came to them with a lot of expectations might be disappointed in this or that place, but it's still George telling a story that he believed in. Yeah. And and that gave them an, an integrity and an authenticity that I could always respect. So even when it wasn't what I would choose, you know, I, I felt like this is this is somebody's genuine artistic vision. He's not creating a product just to sell tickets or to sell merchandise. And the once it gets into the, the hands of, of, you know, when things are run by committee, it's it's just a different it's going to be different. And we not all of us understood how fundamental those changes were going to be. And so it's it's really very different. I mean, the operation at Skywalker Ranch and ILM, I mean, the you saw practically everybody at something like the Halloween parties, which were just legendary. And you'd see everybody that worked for Lucasfilm and ILM. But even that was not that many people. It was it was a small operation where you could know most people. And, you know, there's Dennis Muren over there and there's Don Bees. Hey, Don, you know, he's the guy running R2-D2 as well as being a brilliant model maker. He creates the, the cutaway lightsaber that I designed. You just you got to know everybody. And it was there was a lot of family sense to it. That that's how those movies were, were produced. It was not at all an impersonal corporate situation. And so that was a huge change. And that's why there was so much personnel turnover between the, the two I don't know what you would say regimes. <laughs> sure. Um, so it just it it became a really different approach. And Disney brought to it tremendous power. Um, they've got you know, resources that were extraordinary. Um, they've got the ability to interpret Star Wars in terms of the parks, which is wonderful and powerful. Um, but it, it is a fundamentally different approach. And that's, you know, where we can have movies that take us in one direction and then the next movie backtracks on that. And that's 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 hard when we're investing ourselves in, in these these entertainments that are more than entertainments because the modern world has developed something that people engage with very deeply because we can put the work of so many creative people on the screen at once. I mean, these legions of special effects people now that you see in the credits, but yeah. all of the other things that go into making these movies, we're concentrating creativity into a space of two hours. So of course this is powerfully engaging. And it's, you know, we, we this is something that we 
humans are wired to do is to experience stories and to have our lives enriched that way. And it's uh, for those of us for whom Star Wars is important. You know, this is not messing around. This is something important. It changes the color of your life. It changes the values that you're taught. I mean, I I went and did that in Tunisia because Star Wars A New Hope told the truth that when you stop blaming everybody else for your limitations. Luke, Luke's complaining, right? Oh, I can't get off this planet. I have to please my uncle. All of that's his choice, but he's blaming people. He's in victim mode and he gets his chance, but he, he won't take it until he's pushed by tragedy. But once tragedy pushes him into it, he realizes when you take responsibility for your life, you can pursue your dreams. You can step up. You can accomplish more than you thought was possible. That was a truth that George encapsulated in that movie, and it gave me the courage to do things that I would not have had without those movies. That's changing people's lives. That's not just entertaining them for two hours. Yeah. So that's what Star Wars makes possible when it's a myth. And for its for any whatever weaknesses you want to point out, George was trying to give us a myth. And I I didn't always feel that that the Disney operation was taking the responsibility of. Hey, we we are creating a myth to help people understand what's important, to discern what's what's true from not true in life, and valuable and not valuable. Um, I, I felt like it was taken more in an entertainment direction. So that things can be very impressive, but I don't come away feeling as en enriched and feeling like a better person for having experienced these stories. But, yeah, but you know, Star Wars is is for everybody. So there's there's points of of entry for every direction, and I I love that it's. It speaks in different ways to different people. Keep a hop away.